let's get it going with another edition of Midday on the Rural Radio Network. Dirk Christensen with you here as we start up the round table, which is anything but round. We have never have understood that. All kinds of straight talk that goes on here. I don't know why we call it the round table. I'm round. We don't. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Some of us are, yes. We're, we're all round. You're all round, yeah. yes. That yeah. is true. Well, that maybe explains it. That sounds. <laughs> Thank like goodness. That sounds like something Dave Thorell would pull. Uh, would, yes, <laughs> we are round. I right. thoroughly enjoy the ag products that Nebraska produces. <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> save, Claypad. Nice <laughs> save. All right. Well, uh, you. Uh, we're going to treat you with a couple of, uh, of voices that you don't normally get to hear here. That is. Uh, that's always a treat. So let's go first to Claypad and find out what Ag is doing today. Ag is busy today, and. Alex Wojcicki is starting us off today. I'm excited. I haven't heard this one yet, but she is talking about Ag Apocalypse 2050. Now, of course, we've been on an exponential population rise for many, many years, and 2050 has been that big, you know, what is it, 9 billion turning point, and how are we going to produce that much food? So she's looking into that further, and I'm really excited just to hear what she has to say on that. Then Bruce Gorder joins us at the 1245 Newsmaker with the Iowa Beef checkoff they're investing in some new research in beef and how to better market it to consumers so we're excited to hear that as always trying to get beef more on the center of the plate obviously number one protein but you got to keep that seat and then at 117 susan littlefield joins logan greer at basf all right we'll be listening for it all and of course dewey in just a few seconds here has some crop production numbers brandon bennett has the sports seat today with the commencement exercises that have occurred across much of the landscape of higher education that means postseason play is starting university of nebraska carney baseball team is starting their miaa tournament run and they'll keep playing as long as they keep winning their husker softball team also begins postseason action today when the team plays michigan state the nba's final four is Set and a complete shakeup in the lineup for ESPN Monday night games. In addition to a sideline reporter, they are now also going to have a field level analyst joining the crew. More details on that at 1225. All right, we'll have it all for you here. And giving us the business today is Scott Foster. Absolutely. And I, w- I have a sports note I'd like to make. Yesterday, the New York Metropolitans mm. got two outs because they batted out of order. Oh, no. I coached Little League and Pee Wees for several years, and we'd never had a team bat out of order. How does that happen? Good coaching on the part of Scott Foster. Anyway, stocks are higher on early trading at Wall Street. Uh, extending yesterday, solid gains, technology, and healthcare companies are rising more than the rest of the market. So that's good news. I can't. I still can't believe that. Yeah, that's that, that that's happened. Not even believable. That that really happened, and uh, I I don't know who somebody <laughs> needs to get in trouble for that. So, uh, by the way, another thing I should mention too. Uh, what is, what is the what is the number one selling vehicle in America? Do you know this? The number one selling. The number vehicle. one selling. Anybody can answer this. I'm going to say the. Um, I'll Chev- guess a Ford Chevy Taurus. Silverado. Okay. It's a Ford F one fifty. Right, right now they've got an oh, issue. Yeah. They've got an issue. There's a big fire uh, at a plant in Michigan. They're laying off seventy six hundred workers at this time. Uh, as they get things back online because it's affecting everybody from Dearborn to Kansas City. All right. Well, this and more coming up on today's midday. 
All right, let's bring in Paul Perkins here to take a look at our regional ag weather. And it is brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, your ranky dealer. We have a chance for seeing a little bit of fireworks tonight. Exactly. Especially in west-central Nebraska, they have heightened the risk of severe storms over west-central Nebraska, Ogallala, and North Platte. Then north up to about Highway 2 from Mullen on over to the Hyannis area. That's now in a moderate risk for severe storms. All right, got quite a big splotch there. And then that's going to kind of reissue itself in a different area for Friday, too, right? Exactly, yeah. That should be over southeast uh, Nebraska and north central and northeast Kansas. Otherwise, today, a lot of us in a severe, uh, slight risk for severe storms. And that covers everywhere from east central Nebraska on into the panhandle. But right now, we are seeing temperatures in the 70s to around 80 as you head to right along I-80 and points to the south into northern Kansas. As warm as 80 right now at Hebron. We're at 71 at North Platte. Still some 60s as you head north, though, towards uh, the Sand Hills, Thedford, and Broken Bow and Ord with temperatures right now in the upper 60s. Today going to be unseasonably warm once again. A little more humid today and breezy as some low pressure lifts a warm front to the north. Thunderstorms expected to develop right near a cold front across the high plains late this afternoon and evening, then track east into the overnight. Most of the rain totals with this system expected to range from about a quarter to a half an inch. Not everybody's going to see some rain. We could see some uh, mainly scattered thunderstorms, but if they do pop, they will go severe. There is a slight risk of severe storms once again for areas along and north of I-80 from the Panhandle into central and east-central Nebraska, basically from Norfolk, Columbus, and Sutton, and points towards the west. There is now a moderate risk of severe storms from Ogallala to North Platte, north up to about Highway 2 to around Mullen, Hyannis, and Alliance. That cold front will slide south tomorrow and then stall from southeast Nebraska into south-central Kansas. Thunderstorms once again likely along and north of that front. The slight risk of severe storms tomorrow will cover areas along and south of the line from Omaha to McCook, and large hail with those will be the main threat. For today, we're looking at the main threat of some severe storms, including the hail to the size of ping-pong balls and damaging winds. Temperatures Saturday will be slightly cooler behind that front. Uh, cooler than normal for this time of year with lingering clouds and a chance of some rain and thunderstorms. Mother's Day looks to be mainly dry. Still some clouds hanging on and most temperatures in the 70s. Small chances of thunderstorms will linger into early next week. With the warmer trend, that area of low pressure will remain to our west. A bit of a change in the long-term forecast now. Temperatures for Nebraska starting out warmer than normal the middle of next week. Then we'll trend near normal or seasonal late next week through the 23rd. Looks like our temperatures will stay on the mild side for quite a while. The Kansas temperatures will stay warmer than normal Tuesday through the 23rd. There is a good likelihood of at least slightly above normal rainfall for Nebraska and Kansas Tuesday through the 23rd. The soil temperature is 4 inches down at 7 this morning in the low to mid-50s to the north of I-80. South of I-80 into northern Kansas showed soil temperatures right around the 60-degree mark. To the south of I-70 in Kansas, soil temperatures in the low to mid-60s. In the latest drought monitor that's out today, Nebraska, 77% drought-free. It's abnormally dry along and southeast of the line from north of Omaha to Aurora to McCook. There is moderate drought in Knuckles County and the southeast corner. In Kansas, a different story. The only drought-free counties are Sherman and Cheyenne in the northwest. Otherwise, abnormally dry to a moderate drought to the north of I-70 and the extreme east. Along and south of I-70 and the east-central part of Kansas, severe drought. Those highest stages of extreme to exceptional drought continue to be over the southwest and south-central, including all areas south of the Arkansas River. 
Weather factors driving the market trade include continued rain delays for the Midwest with possible heavy rains in northern areas and not much rain the next 10 days over the southwest plains. Heavy rains are forecast over the northern Midwest the next several days, and that may also include central Iowa. That's likely to further delay the planning and field work for them. Elsewhere in the Midwest, though, a more favorable setup for planning, at least for the next few days. Drought areas of the west central and southwest part of Kansas, southeast Colorado, west Oklahoma, and the Texas Panhandle may not see much rain the next 10 days. That will maintain the stress on the wheat as it goes into the jointing stage. Elsewhere in the southern plains, that weather more favorable with an expected increase in rain about 5 to 10 days from now. All right, and your ag weather brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation. They are your ranky dealer, Paul. If only ping pong ball size hail had the same mass as a ping pong ball. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, if it, did, it had that fu- same firepower. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, yeah, this is probably a bad time. We've got quite a, quite a bit of the crop emerging right now, so that could be some early damage. Yeah, uh, starting to show up there, and yeah, hopefully it won't be too damaging. Uh, a little bit of light rain right now over north-central Nebraska. I forgot to mention this, basically from about O'Neill down to Albion. That's moving off towards the east. All right. We'll keep an eye on it for you, of course, with our live storm center coverage. And when you need weather anytime, krvn.com. USDA's World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates are in. I'm Shaley Peters. Joining you now on the Rural Radio Network as we take a midday look at your ag news. One of the first looks at the 2018-19 crop production projects the U.S. corn crop at 14.04 billion bushels with an average yield of 174 bushels per acre. We get an update on what the numbers are and how the trade is reacting with Mike Zuzalo, Global Commodity Analytics. Well, I think the world corn ending stocks by far, and I just don't think we're trading it yet because the USDA came in at 159 million tons for the new crop, 1819, what we're planting right now, and the average trade guess was 186. So you're talking about nearly 20 million tons less than the average trade guess, and uh, probably about 12, 13 million tons less than the lowest trade guess. So you're talking about not only the smallest U.S. ending stocks in five years, you're talking about supplies of world corn ending stocks coming in now at 2012 drought area levels, and so. With the corn only up one to two, I think something is just not being traded in the corn market. And I think it, it's the U.S. numbers. I think this is going to take days to figure this all, all out between the South American crop, the winter wheat numbers, and then these corn numbers. We may be trading that this into the early next week, especially if Minnesota starts to slow down again on planting. Find the full report and reaction by visiting ruralradio.com. And a report released yesterday from the American Farmland Trust finds that between 1992 and 2012, almost 31 million acres of farmland were lost, equal to all the farmland in Iowa. The farms under threat, the State of America's Farmland Report, according to American Farmland Trust, shows the loss of farmland is serious and will accelerate unless action is taken. The report found that of the 31 million acres lost in that time, 11 million of those acres were among the best farmland in the nation. The data found that 62% of all development between 1992 and 2012 occurred on farmland and expanding urban areas accounted for 59% of the loss. An American Farmland Trust spokesperson says action is needed now because the loss of farmland is irretrievable. The organization further states that allowing large-scale farmland loss to continue imperils our ability to feed our growing population. 
It also challenges the nation's economic prosperity, they said. And the Kansas Department of Ag is holding public forums this week to hear community thoughts on possibly introducing the industrial hemp industry to the state. One of the top questions many people have is what is industrial hemp used for? Clay Patton finds out. Dwayne Sinning is the plant division director at the Colorado Department of Agriculture, and he has helped oversee the Colorado hemp industry since its inception. He brings us more on what markets are available for Colorado hemp. Colorado, like every state that's followed us almost, sees the uh, CBD market uh, probably the fastest to emerge. And that's because the cost of processing is relatively small and the price of the good is uh, the product is relatively high. So it's it's early emerging part of the industry almost everywhere. What we're seeing now, though, are other segments of the industry have, have started to emerge. Grain, you know, use for human food has has been a very fast expanding part. We're seeing, you know, people putting in circle pivots. We're also seeing in some areas where building materials, fiber use has become a mainstay of, of what they're doing. In just under five years, the Colorado hemp industry has grown to nearly 21,000 acres in 2018. On the Rural Radio Network, I'm Clay Patton. For all of our ag news, audio and video, as well as updated market information anytime, you can always visit ruralradio.com. That's a midday look at your ag news here on a Thursday. I'm Shaley Peters, and you're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Could the solutions to feeding a global population be found through a video game? A team of UNL students just might have that answer. Good afternoon to you on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Alex Wojcicki. Agpocalypse 2050 is the brainchild of a UNL Rakes School yearly project where students have to come up with a software-driven solution to a problem. So what is that problem, you might ask? I talked with UNL team member J.P. Fowler to learn more. So the idea is um, that the world population will grow to seven billion, or, sorry, 9 billion by uh, 2050, and we have to learn how to feed everyone with sustainable farming techniques. And we're developing an educational game that will be used in classrooms 4-H and university classrooms to try to teach students how to sustainably farm. Fowler dove deeper into details about the software and programming aspect of the project. Number one thing is there's just a lot of things, um, a lot of domain logic, a lot of business rules to nail down. There's a lot of communication, discussion about what should the player should be allowed to do, what should they not be allowed to do, what is their, I like to say the gameplay narrative, what does the player do throughout the game. He also explained how he and his team generated the idea to create a video game for sustainable farming. We had these conversations about what the game is going to be. And uh, most of us had video game back, uh, history, uh, playing video games. So we kind of understood from the game perspective. We had great sponsors. There were some students that had feet both in the ag world and in the game world that were able to uh, merge the two very nicely. Our sponsors, Infuse, has been taking this a uh, couple places to different 4-H events. One of our sponsors, Ashu Guru, is in the 4-H UNL department, so he has been promoting this here and there. So you're probably wondering, how is a video game supposed to solve the 2050 food crisis? Well, Fowler explains their goals behind the game. 
So if you were to play the game, um, it would be like in a classroom setting, uh, moderated by either a professor or a 4-H teacher, and you would be playing alongside all of your other classmates, all your peers, trying to increase production of, of food, but also trying to do it in a way that um, is sustainable, and all of your individual decisions would affect everyone else. So, you know, if you, you, know, you grow just a ton of corn, you flood the market with corn, drives down corn prices, how does that affect all the other players that are playing in your world. The game is going to teach you, you know, sustainable farming. It's going to have tutorials and pop-up messages that say, you know, hey, this is what are best practices. This is how you're going to better yourself. But it's also going to be, you know, not leading you through, but also trying to let you plot your own course. Players in the game are tasked with creating sustainable ag systems that will feed and fuel the world with limited resources under a changing climate all while understanding the dynamics between food, energy, and water. So while it may seem that video games and agriculture don't have much in common, this UNL team is trying to change that. For more information on Agpocalypse 2050, visit news.unl.edu. Broadcasting from Nebraska Innovation Campus, which is powered by the Nebraska Soybean Board and brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff, you're listening to the Rural Radio Network. You're listening to Midday on the Rural Radio Network. Brandon Bennett is in with sports today. The University of Nebraska Kearney baseball team looks to keep their season going this weekend at the MIAA baseball tournament, which is being held at the University of Central Missouri in Warrensburg. UNK finished the regular season 28-22 and 21-15 and in league play. It was good enough for fifth place, despite being ranked 12th in the preseason rankings. UNK head coach Damon Day is proud of how his team has handled this season. Well, I think without a doubt, I think the, the, the way our baseball program uh, responded to the adversity of uh, the program being cut is, is something uh, truly amazing. I know it's something that has gotten me through a rough time and, and uh, gotten our school. And I thought like through a rough time, just uh, the grace and just kind of professionalism that these guys showed during adverse times. And so for them to go out and compete at the level that they did, knowing that there would be no season after this year is something truly amazing. And on the eve of the tournament, lots of good news for the Lopers. Versatile junior Alex Ochterman has been named the 2018 MIAA Baseball Player of the Year. Ochterman, a junior from Denver, Colorado, was one of eight Lopers named to the all-conference team and was released this morning. In addition for UNK, head coach Damon Day was named the 2018 MIAA Coach of the Year. That's his third Coach of the Year honor as a Loper skipper. In his 15 seasons at UNK, Day has won 394 games to date, led the Lopers to four NCAA tournament appearances and five 30-win seasons. The Lopers begin first-round action against four-seeded Pittsburgh State this evening at 7.30. It's a double-elimination tournament. The Nebraska softball team currently sits at 31-22 and 22 on the year, 9-13 and 13 in the Big Ten. They begin their postseason action this afternoon as well when the team plays Michigan State. First pitch for that game is 4.30 Central Time at the first round of the 2018 Big Ten Softball Tournament. That's being held in Madison, Wisconsin. The Huskers enter the tournament as the number 9 seed, while the Spartans are the number 8. And you hopes to make a deep run in the tournament to help increase the chances for an NCAA tournament bid, which will be announced on Sunday at the conclusion of the tournament. And the NBA's Final Four is set with Boston's win over Philadelphia last night. That brought down the curtain on the postseason second round, which marks the first time since 2002 that none of the NBA's four conference semifinal series went past five games. 
Cleveland swept Toronto, while Houston, Golden State, and Boston all prevailed by 4-1 to counts. Starting on Sunday, the Boston Celtics will meet the Cleveland Cavaliers in a rematch of last year's conference finals. Then on Monday, the Houston Rockets will take on the defending champion, Golden State Warriors. That leaves the Cavaliers and the Warriors four wins away from a fourth consecutive meeting in the NBA Finals. And there'll be three new voices working on ESPN's Monday Night Football games this year. Play-by-play announcer Joe Tessitore, analyst Jason Witten, and Booger McFarland. He will be the Monday Night Football's first field-level analyst. Tessitore replaces Sean McDonough, who will return to doing college football. With John Gruden back in the coaching for the Raiders, Witten and McFarland move into the analyst roles. Lisa Salters is the only holdover. She'll be returning for her seventh season as the sideline reporter. That's a look at sports. Stay tuned. More of Midday is straight ahead. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Mostly sunny today with the high near 83. Tonight there is a 40% chance of showers and thunderstorms mainly between 9 p.m. and 4 a.m., low of around 52. And then for Friday, partly sunny with a high near 69. From the KRVN News Center, I'm Scott Foster. The Kansas Department of Ag is holding public forums this week to hear community thoughts on possibly introducing the industrial hemp industry to the state. One of the top questions many people have is, what is industrial hemp used for? Clay Patton finds out. Dwayne Sinning is the plant division director at the Colorado Department of Agriculture, and he has helped oversee the Colorado hemp industry since its inception. He brings us more on what markets are available for Colorado hemp. Colorado, like every state that's followed us almost, sees the uh, CBD market uh, probably the fastest to emerge, and that's because the cost of processing is relatively small and the price of the good is, uh, the product is relatively high. So it's it's early emerging part of the industry almost everywhere. What we're seeing now, though, are other segments of the industry have have started to emerge. Grain, you know, use for human food has, has been a very fast expanding part. We're seeing, you know, people putting in circle pivots. We're also seeing in some areas where building materials, fiber use has become a mainstay of of what they're doing. In just under five years, the Colorado hemp industry has grown to nearly 21,000 acres in 2018. On the Rural Radio Network, I'm Clay Patton. Lexington letter carriers will conduct their annual Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive this Saturday, May 12th. Mail carriers will pick up non-perishable foods by your mailbox on their delivery routes. Lexington letter carrier Luann McBride says for those who are going to be out of town, there's another way to donate. If you are going to be out of town for Mother's Day, graduations, that type of thing, uh, you can bring it to the post office any time this week. Uh, I think there might be, a, there should be a tub in the lobby to leave can, uh, items in, or you can just set it on our dock uh, on the east side of the post office, and we'll find it there. And uh, so, if that works better for people, that's great. If they'd rather just bring it to the post office, uh, that's fine too. This year marks the 26th annual Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive for the National Association of Letter Carriers. Last year, carriers collected more than 71 million pounds of food in over 10,000 cities and towns in all 50 states, plus the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. McBride is passionate about the annual food drive. Uh, You know, there's a big need. Uh, There's a lot of hungry people, and it doesn't really matter what size of city or, or town it is. You know, we've been doing participating in this for uh, 12 years. The Postal Service uh, has been very cooperative with the National Association of Letter Carriers in letting us do this and letting us collect this food because it is, it is a convenient way for people to, to give back. 
great ag and news coverage at your fingertips, click podcast and videos right under Listen Live at krvn.com. From the newsroom, I'm Scott Foster. I'm Bruce Gorder on the Rural Radio Network. Iowa's in-state beef checkoff is about a year old now. Chris Freeland is the executive director of the Iowa Beef Industry Council. She reminds us of the particulars of the checkoff. So as most every producer knows, we have had a national and a state checkoff working in Iowa for about a year now. So May of 2017, we started the new 50 cent per head collection and all aimed at investing in the beef industry, both in Iowa, in the U.S., and internationally to grow beef demand for the profitability of our producers. How's the checkoff being received by the producers? I know we, you know it's kind of kind of a mixed reaction at first uh, about uh, giving up another fifty cents, but how's it being received now? Yeah, we've heard a lot of positive comments. Uh, we've also had a lot of great conversations. So if there's a misunderstanding or a lack of information, we're communicating in different ways, both digitally and on the radio as well as in print. And I think the biggest thing is. We're needing to tell our story of how that funding is invested and what it's returning back to the farm gate. And I know sometimes it gets a little far out from the immediate farm gate. So however we can help shape that conversation of producers. And one exciting thing that we've had is an unveiling of a fairway trailer wrap. So we were at the foot of the Capitol yesterday with Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag, uh, our beef council and our beef Uh, producers as well as our staff and it's steak on one side burgers on the other and a farm feature of dan hanneran from madison county sharing how he is a good steward of the land and produces high quality beef and of course we brought back the beef it's what's for dinner slogan so that's a moving billboard with fairway going across uh, five states so that's all part of the education component isn't it absolutely and branding about the product. So that beef it's what's for dinner, you'll see continuing nationally in in all of the states, and then we can uh, help execute that locally. Now, you talk about uh, funds uh, from the checkoff being uh, being used. Uh, You've also uh, made a a big announcement on some research projects that are going to uh, be used with those checkoff funds. Yeah, one of the exciting things that was allowable under the state law under Chapter 181 of Iowa Code was we can invest in production research. That was not allowable and still is not allowable under the national. So we were able to fund our board and our research committee eight projects across three states, and uh, five of those projects are right here at Iowa State University. And so uh, anything from biomarkers for BRD, to uh, some new technology with cameras and health assessments, to feed efficiency, to grazing cover crops for the cow-calf fall uh, calving animals. Those are just a few samples of what we're looking at. How did you come up with with the uh, final list? Uh, I'm sure you got uh, had a lot of ideas uh, thrown at you as far as research projects. How did you come up with this final list? Yeah, we brought a diverse group of producers from cow-calf to feed yard to reproduction specialists to uh, scientists together. And we worked with our board to kind of set the strategy. And we came up with three main objectives. One was cattle production systems beneficial to Iowa's beef producers. The next was on-farm practices and herd health. And the final was marketing trends. So all of those important categories. So we put a request for proposal out 
to all of the animal science departments across the U.S., and then they were able to say, this project is something we're interested in, and it fits into one of the categories. At that point, we had a research committee, diverse team of individuals who reviewed those proposals, crunched some numbers, and made recommendations to the board. So at the end of the day, the 20-member board um, had input, and the 10 executive committees voted on the funding structure. Now, it sounds like uh, some of these research projects will benefit not only Iowa producers, but producers across the country. Yes, we do believe that these are trends. I mean, BRD, for instance, is a health condition that affects many uh cattle producers so we we find common themes and we made sure that it made sense and what we found rooted in our economic impact study is a study that was conducted using the state checkoff and what we said is we don't know uh, where we need to go or where we need to invest if we don't have baseline data and so that study commissioned by the state beef checkoff using Iowa State University's beef center and then partnering with the Cattlemen's Association, the Iowa Area Development Group, Iowa Corn, and Iowa Farm Bureau, we were able to bring that study to light in the way of economics and increased opportunity. So the checkoff is to be a catalyst to not only grow demand, but increase producer profitability. Comments from Chris Freeland. She's the executive director of the Iowa Beef Industry Council. And I'm Bruce Gorder on the Rural Radio Network. Clay Patton back on the Rural Radio Network now joined with Joe Teal as we take a look here at the settling livestock futures. And Joe, definitely a day of uh, green, triple-digit gains here in the cattle and hogs right behind them following weaker grains. Uh, yeah, it was a good day. Uh, it, well, one exception, the May hogs, which finished a little lower. The rest of the uh, complex, the meat complex, higher. And only uh, in the uh, May hogs because they still are very much tied to that index because they expire uh, on Monday. So uh, that kept them from, from rallying because they're still at a premium, even though that gap has closed uh, very tight now. The uh, cattle load, first to respond, uh, it, it appears that uh, everything continues to be pretty firm in the, in the cash side, too. Uh, the cutouts were higher again at noon. And uh, all of that, considering all the discounts that we have with uh, livestock, that really helped. And uh, then you throw in uh, lower, uh, the grains moving uh, lower, and that uh, really helped in the uh, feeders in particular. So uh, a fairly strong day. It seems like we're uh, on the cattle uh, complex, one day up, one day down, one day up. This was our day up. Now, can we continue... uh, uh, with a rally, that's going to depend upon a lot on the uh, finish of the cattle uh, trade, the cash cattle trade during the week. The hogs, the cutouts were high, sharply higher there. That really helped uh, in the, the, the hog. That's Joe Teal joining us here, bringing us a closing look here at the livestock futures on the Rural Radio Network. when it comes to what and when in applications. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Littlefield on the World Radio Network. I caught up with Logan Greer of BASF to talk about some things that you as a producer need to know this growing season. 
This year, Ingenia herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted use pesticide. That means that applicators must be certified or working under a certified applicator in order to apply this product. Also, every applicator must be trained through dicamba or oxen-specific training in order to use this product. And BSF has offered many training opportunities in person, and also we have an online training module available as well at ingeniastewardship.com. Boom height remains the same at 24 inches above the target, and wind speed has changed a little bit, so you can only apply when the wind is between 3 and 10 miles per hour, and you need to be aware of what is downwind. You cannot spray when there are sensitive crops like non-DT soybeans downwind, so it's important to talk to your neighbors and check things like Drift Watch to understand what is surrounding your field. The buffer zone has remained the same at 110 feet, and check the label to see when you need to be utilizing that buffer zone. One new addition to the label is the time of day. So you can only spray from sunrise to sunset, and that is meant to avoid applications during temperature inversion. You know, with so many things, Logan, being put to the producers and new requirements before we actually get in the field, it's nice to know that they've got a variety of different options to find the information by attending class, but going online just to reiterate what they need to remember when it comes to to wind speeds and, and just the communication that's needed for the product. There are a lot of tools available to applicators out there, and the best place to find all of these tools are at ingeniastewardship.com. So at ingeniastewardship.com, you can find all of our checklists. Um, We have our EPA checklist available in English and Spanish. We also have a variety of state checklists for those states that have 24 Cs. In addition, we have links to our labels. This is where we have our online training module available and various other resources that can be helpful to growers, including a link to the spray. What about for helping growers with the on-target application? More information? I mean, concerns with, you know, cloud cover, temperature, there's so many factors they need to keep in mind. Absolutely, and that's why we've developed this Ingenia spray tool. It has all of the key weather-related requirements in one place, and that includes the the inversion potential. Um, It has rainfall included, as well as time of sunrise and sunset, and wind speed and direction. And it takes all of these factors and creates a conditions index, and it forecasts over the next 36 hours so that they can plan the best time to spray their application. And this is strictly for planning purposes. It's important to check the weather in the field at the time of application. Well, you know, Logan, you've given us so much information so far, everything from wind speeds to temperatures to things that we need to remember before and during spray time. And more details can be found at IngeniaStewardship.com. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Welcome back to the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton, joined with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniel's Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. And John, as we take a look here towards the ending grain session, uh, following the USDA report, maybe not the ending some had anticipated. 
Yeah, it's quite the day. I, I think you know, don't don't regard the price action here into the short run. I think um, you know some farmers selling on this rally and uh, just a little a little risk off given the NAFTA story and and this talk out of China being so negative. But uh, we got really look out in the curve. So short term, we have supply. You know, two billion plus on corn, uh, very substantial for soybeans and wheat. Obviously, uh, the numbers are well known as far as uh, having big stockpiles around. But when we look out the next year's production and, and using the kind of math penciling that we like to do here. Um, you know, I'm not growing the crops. So it's easy for me to pencil in a trend yield, but if you do that, you're still looking at a carryout loss of around 500 million bushels or 25% of the stocks that'll be left over. So the uh, way I look at this, and I would explain it to somebody who's new, is it's like your savings account. Your savings account was $2,000 th- at the end of this year. Next year, it's going to be 1500 So it gives you a little more... Uh, a little less room to uh, to kind of fool around and, and spend money, and uh, I think the market is going to have to do two things. One, it's going to have to incentivize production uh, for next year, and two, it's going to have to uh, curb demand on uh, on the old crop, especially as we start getting into kind of the later part of harvest and, and early of 2019. Uh, we're going to have to shut demand down in, in, in some facet, uh, given that exports are going to stay on these shores, and, and corn uh, really is probably going to need to be produced down in South America. So... I'd be buying breaks. I don't think breaks will be that extensive. We'll probably fill this gap at 397 on the July. Maybe it takes us back down to 415 December corn, but I think we'll see 450 before we see $4 again on the on the December contract. Uh, the hard thing will be selling this summer because you start penciling in uh, corn production at 169, 171. I don't care. Knock out, you're knocking off 175 million bushels from that 1.6 billion bushel carryout. So now you're looking at 1312 on a sub-5% uh, you know, crop. Uh, trend yield, which we've been at trend three in a row. So you got to be a betting man here thinking maybe we'd have a little bit of a sub-threat this year. And if that happens, we're going to really rally, and I think it'll be tough to make sales. So my advice is to try to get yourself lined up with some call options or some, you know, hold on to old crop and then sell when it feels wrong to do it. At this point, it, uh, it's not there yet. That is John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. If you'd like more information, you can always reach out to them at danielsagmarketing.com. The big news still on the day is the USDA WASDE report with corn and wheat, both coming out just slightly above average estimates for overall carryouts, but soybeans coming in 11 million bushels below. So that's definitely weighing on the market here as we move to the close of the trade. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network.